Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Lord Jesus Christ, You are above all names. You are above all kingdoms. You are the Lord of all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to You. You are seated upon a throne. You were not voted into office. You are Lord by virtue of Your death, burial, and resurrection. You are very God of very God and very flesh of very flesh. We praise You because You are the King and the Savior. And Lord, we are grieved at how little our hearts love You and how little we think of You each week. And Lord, as we look at this world, this world is in chaos, it's in tumult, it's like the ocean during a hurricane. There is uh, uh, war, there is uh, poverty. This world is broken by corruption and sin. And Lord, we rejoice that You are coming back, that Your kingdom has begun to come and will come. And Lord, our comfort is in Your return. And Lord Jesus, forgive us when we get so caught up in the affairs of our lives and the details, the things we're so worried about. And Lord, Your kingdom is coming and we're not worried about that. We are so worried about things that don't matter and we don't think at all about the one thing that does truly matter. And so Lord, we pray that You would realign our thoughts and our minds this morning as we think about how we live our daily lives. May we live our lives in light of Your coming kingdom. May we live with expectation. May our values in this world reflect the values of the coming kingdom of God. And Lord, that's going to make us look out of place in this world. It's going to make us look uh, strange because we're living according to the, the ethics of a different culture. But Lord, we pray that as we live out the ethics of the kingdom of God, that Your kingdom would come, that people would come to know You. Lord, thank You for uh, this church. I thank You for the love that's in this church. I thank You for the joy that's in this church. Thank You, Lord, for people who gather a thirsty for Your presence every week, hungry to hear from the Word of God and to feed upon it. Lord, we just pray that You would feed us this morning, that You would give us what we're longing for. Lord, I pray for those in our church who are sick, who are physically ill, who are uh, emotionally wounded and hurting. God, we pray for healing for those who are mentally ill. Lord, for all those, Lord, who are broken in different ways, God, we pray that You would bring Your healing and Your grace into their lives this morning. And Lord, I pray for those who are out of work that You would provide jobs. I pray, God, for our body that we would be a loving and embracing community that as people come into our midst, they would experience You, Jesus, by experiencing us and the way we relate to one another and to them. And now, Lord, thank You for Your Word. We look forward to studying the Bible now. We pray that, uh, that as I preach this sermon, that You would be preaching this sermon through the Holy Spirit to people's hearts. That, Lord, two sermons would be heard. The one I preach, but more importantly, the one that You preach. And so, God, speak to us. We long to hear Your voice. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can go to Children's Church. And if you are in the kids' choir, you can go to kids' choir. And with the rest of you, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Today we're continuing our study in Luke 14 and our text is verses 12 to 14. Well, maybe we should uh, begin with a little recap because uh, our text today 
uh, is part of a larger narrative. So last Sunday we studied a passage, and the passage we're going to study today is just kind of a continuation of the same story. So it might be helpful just to uh, cover some ground and re- remind ourselves what we looked at last week, especially if you weren't here. This would be kind of a chance for you to, to be caught up. But um, last week, you'll remember, Jesus uh, went to a dinner party. That's the story. Jesus shows up. But you know, wherever Jesus is, it's never normal. It's never business as usual. So Jesus shows up at this dinner party, and uh, in fact, you can find it there in chapter 14, verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the home of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And so uh, here's Jesus. He's invited to the home of one of the leaders in, his, in that community, one of the religious leaders. He's uh, hobnobbing with the social elite. He's gotten into the religious country club. They've invited him over for dinner. And uh, while he's there, something interesting happens, verse 2. It says, there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, or in other words, edema. And uh, in other words, this guy was diseased. He was very sick. And so you have this interesting study in contrast going on in the story. You have the social elite, the religious uh, leaders in the community, and in their midst is a guy who is a social uh, nobody. He's at the bottom of the religious pile, and he's uh, ceremonially unclean because he's diseased. So among a bunch of people who are obsessed, is probably a fair word, with ceremonial cleanness, here's a guy who is ceremonially unclean because of his disease that he has. So... Uh, it's kind of an interesting situation. Um, and now what's Jesus going to do? That's the question. Is he going to heal this guy, even though it's the Sabbath, and all the Pharisees say, well, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, and healing is a kind of work. Uh, so, you know, what's going to happen? And Jesus raises the question. Look at verse 3. You'll remember this. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man... He healed him and sent him away. So this is a soiree that people are going to be talking about, really, for uh, months to come. You know, you remember when Jesus healed that guy at the party? Like, I can't believe it. And, and so they're going to be remembering, they're going to be talking about this. Jesus has really done something dramatic here in their midst. But he doesn't stop there. As if it was big enough for him to do this kind of gesture of healing this guy, touching this sick guy in the midst of this kind of black tie affair, so to speak. Uh, Jesus goes on then to preach at the guests. And that's what we studied last week in verses 7 to 11. He noticed all the guests are kind of like jockeying for position around the table. They all want to be at the seats of honor at the banquet. And Jesus says, hey, all you guys, don't take the best seats. Take the lowest seats. You know, and everyone's like, oh, oh. <laughs> you just imagine the kind of shock uh, at Jesus' behavior. And as if he's not bold enough, as if he hasn't shown enough just chutzpah and saying all these things. In our text today, he now has the gumption to directly address the host and lecture the host about what he should do. You know, the, ho- the prominent Pharisee, the guy in town who when he speaks, everyone says, oh, mm, yes, of course, because he's the guy everyone shows deference to. Everybody kowtows this guy. But Jesus has the gall to lecture him. So look at our text. This is our text, verses 12 and four- to 14. Then Jesus said to his host... When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. 
Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I mean, how awkward <laughs> to say this to the guy. Because I'm sure the guy has invited all the people from verse 12. All, all the people at the party are the friends. They're the people who are in the same general social stratosphere as this guy. And Jesus says, you know, you invited all the wrong people to this party. You should have invited all the outsiders, the people who live at the margins of the community, the people with no influence and no clout. Um, now, this, you get the point of the story. I mean, it's a very simple story at one level. Anyone can understand it. But I'll tell you, when you understand the historical background of the social structure in the Roman world, this story that we can all understand takes on an added richness. And so let me just spend a few minutes painting that out for you. Uh, the Roman Empire and the Greco-Roman world was held together socially by a system that we call today the patronage system. Uh, uh, the patronage system was the glue that started up there at the top with the emperor and all the way down to the lowest slaves. It, it knit the whole culture together. That's how the society worked in Greco-Roman times. And uh, patronage is very simple. Let me just uh, summarize. Patronage means giving gifts with strings attached. That's what patronage was. Giving gifts with strings attached. And people do that today still. Uh, but back then, that's how it all worked and everyone understood that's how it worked. You see, the, the uh, resources within the Roman world were held by a relative few. Uh, the people who had the land and the money and the power were small in number. And so to get some resources, you had to go to a benefactor or a patron and you had to ask him. And if he decided to give you what you were asking for, you were now owned by this person in a, in a social sense. You owed him gratitude. You owed him respect. You owed him service. Uh, you had to give this person your loyalty. You know, it's kind of like in the Godfather movies, right? You know, the guy goes to the Godfather and it's like, hey, I need, you know, $4,000 to start a little, you know, something over here. And the Godfather says, okay, I'll give you your money. But first you've got to do something for me, you know. I've got a little something I want you to take care of for me. And, and now, you, now you're owned. The Godfather owns you. And so you ventured into sort of a deal with the devil. And he, he keeps giving as long as you keep showing your loyalty and willingness to serve him in whatever he asks you to do. And so this structure permeated the Roman Empire. It's just how it worked. Everyone understood it. It was explicit. Um, and it even affected dinner obligations. So when this uh, prominent Pharisee was inviting people into his home, he wasn't merely just showing hospitality. He was acting as a benefactor. He was the godfather of that town, so to speak. And so when these people came into his home, they now owed him. They owed him respect. They owed him honor. That's why when he spoke, everyone listened, because he was this guy. He showed his benefactor-ness through his uh, hospitality. And uh, people owed him service. They owed him loyalty. If they could, they had to invite him over to their home next. So th this, was, this whole thing is taking place. It, it's sort of operating under the surface. Um, now, now I hope you can see how ridiculous it would have been in that social structure, with that context, for the prominent Pharisee to invite the poor and the needy into his home. Because how are they going to repay? I mean, the patronage system, you know, it, it just kind of runs dry and it doesn't work. And suddenly, like, well, why should I invite them? They can't give anything back. Don't you know how the world turns, Jesus? And, and so how are these guys going to give anything back? They're poor. They don't have anything. Uh, this guy's blind. He sits on a street corner begging. I mean, he, no one's going to listen to him. How can he give me prestige? Because if he says, oh, that guy's great, no one listens to that guy anyway. And so there's nothing to give back. And the entire patronage dynamic just falls apart. It freezes up. And it, 
it ceases to work. So of course you wouldn't invite the poor and the uh, crippled and the lame and the blind and the widow and the orphan and the tax collector and those who are at the fringes uh, because it would subvert the whole system. That's not how patronage works. And so you can imagine then uh, the way the patronage system in a sense insulated the social elite. It essentially became a way of protecting uh, power structures in the community so that those who were at the bottom would always be at the bottom because there was no way for them to ever break into the top. You know, it's not like America where you know, there's more freedom. You could earn money and there's always the American dream. You know, there wasn't the, the Palestinian dream. They didn't have something like that. And so if you were at the bottom, you were at the bottom. And these kinds of patterns uh, sort of solidified and ossified the social structure. And so now you can imagine, given all that, how shocking and ridiculous sounding Jesus' suggestion must have been to the ears, not only of the host, but all the people. Like, oh, you invited the wrong people. Don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors. Invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And you will be blessed. And so once again, we see that the kingdom of God is going the complete opposite direction from the kingdom of this world. This world is oriented toward, and I am, and you are oriented toward power. We're oriented toward wealth, fame, competence, success, influence. That's just kind of how we're naturally uh, gravitated. Uh, We want to go that direction, right? You know, if there was a a Red Sox player who came to church this morning in the front pew, we'd all be like, he's here. We're oriented around famous people. We're oriented around power and influence. But the kingdom of God is attracted in the opposite direction. The kingdom of God is attracted to to nothings and nobodies and people who don't have anything and people who are uh, poor and needy and without any influence and uh, prestige. it's, It's so strange. In fact, you remember when Jesus was first born. He was born to a peasant family. And... Who did the angels come to to announce that Jesus had been born? The lowly shepherds. Uh, And Jesus began His public ministry. He made it very clear that the kingdom of God was to be preached to the poor. In fact, uh, put a finger here in Luke 14. I want you to turn back to Luke 4. You remember this text we studied way back in, I don't know, 2002 or something. I don't remember. (laughs) A long time ago. Uh, Luke chapter 4. Um, verses 14 and following is an important passage. Jesus goes back to his hometown and preaches, but it's important in the structure of Luke because it, uh, it sets the programmatic tone for Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is kind of summarizing what the nature of his whole ministry is going to be like. So if you look at Luke chapter 4, he's back in Nazareth, he's in his hometown, he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, And then in verse uh, 18, he's given the Isaiah scroll, and this is the passage he reads to explain his ministry. And here's the passage, uh, Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, of course, he rolls up the scroll, he sits down, verse 21, he says... Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And we could go on and on, going can go back to Luke 14 now, but you know, we could cite passage after passage. This summer when Darren Prince preached, he essentially gave us kind of an overview of how this theme keeps coming up and keeps coming up in the Gospel of Luke. Which now raises the question, why is the kingdom of God oriented toward the poor, 
the broken, those at the margins, the outsiders. Why is it that way? Um, is it because there is inherent virtue in being poor? Is it if you're poor, you're good, and if you're rich, you're bad? If you're sick, you're good, but if you're healthy, you're evil? Is that what it is? I, I don't think so. I, I think it's this. Jesus came to bring the grace of God. That's why he came. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace. Jesus came from heaven down to a sinful and broken world to help sinners like us who can't ever repay God and to welcome us back into fellowship with God through his death on the cross. That's what Jesus came to do. The very essence of his ministry was bringing a gift from God that we cannot receive or pay or pay back or anything like that. And so, therefore, I think the kingdom of God gravitates toward those who are most needy in any sense of the word, uh, whether it's emotionally needy or physical or, or economically. And, and the kingdom of God goes to them because, in a sense, their physical and outward brokenness is such a beautiful picture of our inward sinfulness that we all have, right? And those who are often, in times in your life, maybe you've been really broken physically or economically or emotionally, you just know you feel open to God more. It's, it's something that happens. You know, when you're really hurting, you suddenly look up and you say, maybe there's bigger issues besides the fact that I'm out of work. Maybe, maybe I need to think about the Lord. But when everything's going good in your life and you've got it all together and you're at the top of the social heap economically and everything, it's just human nature, people. It's human nature. We don't think about the Lord. And it's harder when you're well off and doing good to keep trusting in God. And so I think that's why the kingdom of God is oriented toward the poor, because they embody what we all are. The Pharisees are just as spiritually needy as the guy with dropsy was. The difference is the guy with dropsy is more prone to recognize his need than the Pharisees were. And so that's the nature of the kingdom of God. And so what that means for us is, it means that if we are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to go around saying, I'm saved, God saved me, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, are you going to heaven? I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me and I believe in Him and you need to believe in Jesus too. And if that's the kind of people we're going to profess to be, then that means we have to live out the life of Christ. We have to adopt the ethics of the kingdom. If I claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, but I live as if I'm a part of the culture of this world, there's a disconnect between what I'm saying and what I'm doing. Uh, and so that means even simple things like being willing to welcome into our homes those who are broken in different ways. You know, I'm just going to be totally honest with you. I find this text not just convicting. That's probably too soft a word. I find this text threatening. I feel threatened by this passage. I am not looking forward to preaching this sermon all week. I have not been. I've been like, oh, because I know I don't live this way. There's a big disconnect between my life and the life of Christ and the way He lived. And I know Christ is mine. I love Him. And then I look at the way He lived and I think I, I am so much more like the Pharisees. I'm so much more oriented to have people into my life who are brothers, relatives, and of course, rich neighbors. We all love to have rich neighbors in our lives. That's great. Um, but the the crippled, the lame, the blind, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the tax collector, the prostitute, the sinner, the people who are out there. And we're not talking about dropping a buck into a homeless guy's Dunkin' Donut cup, right? We're talking about having someone into your home. 
which as we know in ancient Near Eastern culture and in um, cultures today in, in the Middle East, to eat with somebody was to enter into a kind of pact with them. You entered into a, a state of fellowship and, and peace with that person. So it was a big deal to have someone in your home. There was a, a communal sort of thing that was taking place. There was, there was sort of an unspoken commitment that was happening by eating with somebody. So Jesus is talking about inviting people into our life space who are, are broken in different ways. And like I said, I find that in my sinful nature, I find that threatening. I find that difficult to, to think about doing. Um, or let me put it differently. Let me ask this question to myself and of you as well. Are all the people who are in my life relationally, are they all pretty much just like me? Do they all pretty much inhabit the same socioeconomic strata? Are they all around the same education level? Are they all on basically the same stage of life? They're married or they're single or they have kids or they don't have kids or they're young or they're old. Have I become like the Pharisees and have I insulated myself in relationship with just people who are like me, with whom I can be in reciprocal relationships with? Or is there anyone in my life who can't really reciprocate what I give to them? Um, You know? Uh, those of uh, us who are white-collar folks, do you know any blue-collar people who are really in your life? And I don't just mean paying some guy to mow your lawn. Right? You, know, you have to really <laughs> know them. Um, those who are well-educated, master's degrees and PhDs, do we have relationships with people who um, you know, didn't complete high school or just barely have their GED or whatever? Do those who are uh, beautiful and uh, healthy and fit, do they relate with those who are not or who are handicapped? Uh, Do we who have sound mind just run for cover when we find out someone, for whatever reason, doesn't have a sound mind and they have a mental illness? That's not their fault. It's just part of the chemistry in their brain. And it's not like they did something wrong. It's just they were born that way. And do we shy away from that or do we embrace and do we reach out? Um, When you're in school, How do you treat the special needs kid in your class? Do you join in mocking the kid with all the other kids or do you invite him over to the table for lunch? Are you worried about what everyone's going to think of you if you do that? Um, And what about the immigrant who pumps my gas or who bags my groceries? You know, are, are we just kind of glad they're there because they're doing the jobs that we don't want to do? Or is there any potential of opening a dialogue with a person? Uh, and I ask these questions not as one who can answer yes, really. <laughs> I'm asking these questions as one who is so convicted by this text because I feel we've insulated our lives, I've insulated my life with those who are like me, and so I don't exhibit the kingdom of God in, in the way I relate to those who are um, at the bottom of the pile, so to speak. <clears throat> I was trying to think of my life. Have there ever really been a time when I've had a significant unreciprocal relationship with somebody else who could not repay, who could not give back. And sadly, I couldn't think of a lot of examples. One I I could think of, though, I was just trying to think about what this would be like. I remember when I was in college, I was at Wheaton College, which is a Christian college, and that's where I met my wife. And and one semester, semester, I think for a whole year, Jennifer and I wanted to get involved in a ministry together. We were engaged. And so Wheaton College has all these ministries you can do. We decided to do a nursing home ministry. And so we would go on Sunday afternoons and we'd visit this nursing home and... uh, you know, try to get to know some of the people there. And there was this one guy that we'd go see, and he was kind of one of our regulars. His name was uh, Ted. And uh, Ted was this guy, old guy, had a stroke, big stroke. He never recovered. And so he just kind of sat in the same hallway in the same place every day. And, 
you talk to him, and he was nice, but you know he couldn't really speak clearly. He couldn't think clearly. Uh, he, th- what he told us, what we could understand of what he told us, you know, was pretty much the same thing every week, <laughs> told the exact same way, and unfortunately, it wasn't really very interesting. So like, every week you're sitting with Ted, and how you doing, Ted? And he just starts. It's like the tape starts, and he starts playing the same tape. Really not very engaging, and you're just listening to him asking the same questions. You don't know if he even remembered you from last week, and. Uh, and there were some other folks we met with like that. And I wish I could say that I went away from my time in the nursing home every afternoon really inspired. I wish I could say I went away from that like just full of joy in the Lord. I, I mostly went away just discouraged, empty, sobered. I, I really didn't get anything out of it. You know, what's in it for me? It's like nothing. <laughs> I didn't see anything in it for me. And I mean, sometimes it was an act of willpower. It's like Sunday afternoon... Oh, I'd just like to take a nap. But we signed up for this ministry and we need to go. And, and, you know, I wish I was more spiritual, but I'm not. I just am what I am. So we'd go. And it was a non-reciprocal relationship. And so the question is, how do you keep loving someone with the love of Christ in a non-reciprocal relationship where you are giving and the person can't in any significant way repay back so that it's kind of a one-way sort of thing? And I guess the answer to that is the same to the answer to the questions like, how do you love in a loveless marriage? How do you um, uh, keep reaching out to children who keep turning their back on you? How do you keep witnessing in an office where everyone thinks you're nuts for being a Christian and there's open hostility toward your faith? You know, how do you do that? And you know, the answer is you have to keep your eyes on Jesus. That Jesus has to be the reason you do it. That it's because of who Christ is and because I am looking forward to my repayment at the resurrection of the righteous, I am going to keep my eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's when I get my eyes off Christ that I find myself back in my flesh and I'm unable to do anything. But it's when Christ fills me up that when the life of Christ becomes my joy that I actually am able to go beyond myself and enter into non-reciprocating relationships with people who need the love of God. Um, See, I hope you understand, this sermon is not about do-gooderism. That was my one worry when I preached this sermon, is that we would, you would think I was just telling you to, to do some good deeds. And like, you know, okay, I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to find a poor person, I'm going to be their friend, and that way I won't feel guilty anymore. And I get, the, get rid of this. And see, oh, no, I have a poor friend, see? Huh? That's right. And we hang out once every you know, couple months, so you know, I'm okay, I'm good. You know, that's not the point. It's not about do-gooderism or sort of assuaging some kind of making me feel guilty because I'm rich sort of thing. It's about understanding the kingdom of God and understanding who Jesus was and that Christ came as the ultimate benefactor. He came to give to me what I could never repay Him and give back to Him. I am spiritually impoverished. I am morally crippled. I can't reach out to Christ because I'm so broken in my sin. I am morally and spiritually lame. I cannot enter the kingdom of God in my own strength. I am spiritually blind. You know, God's truth is everywhere and I just can't see it. And so I am the needy person and you are the needy person. We are sinners in the hands of an angry God, as Jonathan Edwards said. But the amazing story of the Bible is that in spite of our sin and our our liableness to judgment and wrath, God sent His own Son, Jesus, to come and to give us that which we could never repay. He came as the ultimate benefactor, giving in the ultimate non-reciprocal relationship His grace for my sin. 
And the only thing I ever bring to the table in salvation is my sin. That's all I can bring. I don't have any good deeds to bring to the table. I don't have religiousness to bring to the table. I just have my sin. And Jesus takes my sin on the cross and gives me His righteousness and grace. And I think it's as I let those truths just soak in again and again and again, and I let the Gospel just saturate deeper and deeper into the fabric of my being, that I find that I'm able to reach out to others. Because what happens then is I no longer see other people or I see them less and less as, uh, you know, through the walls of social stratification. I have like this gospel x-ray vision. And it's not like, well, you're poor and I'm rich and you're this and I'm that. I just look out and I'm like, oh, I see. Everyone's a sinner in danger of the judgment of God. And just like me. And they need Jesus just as much as I do. And so I just see people as in need of Christ like I am. I'm one poor beggar who's found the bread. And I'm going out to tell other beggars where the bread is. And, and that changes everything. And I think that it helps me get past these phony social constructs that the world has thrown upon me and to see things through the lens of the kingdom of God. Um, I heard a cool story this week about um, our men's ministry. Uh, Russ McLeod is uh, one of our elders. He leads our men's ministry. He's going to be leading communion in a moment. And he was telling me how um, they had their monthly men's ministry has started up. Basically, it's like it's called Third Mondays. It's every third Monday of the month. They get together. They have a meal together. They have a speaker, kind of a guy's night, sort of a Christian lodge meeting or something, you know. Um, Christian Elks, I don't know what it is. It's great. They, you know, guys hang out and, rah, 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 and lots of testosterone and all this. And Anyway, they had... Um, they had these, uh, this group come from Teen Challenge. Have you heard of Teen Challenge? It's, like a, it's, a, it's a drug rehab program for teens, but it, it's kind of like boot camp. I mean, it's intense. This is not kid gloves. I mean, it's like in-your-face boot camp drug rehab with total Christian message. You know, it's, it's completely overt and out there. And so a speaker came from Teen Challenge, but he also brought along a lot of the guys who were in the program. And Russ said it was fascinating because you had all these tables of all these men who were all friends and knew each other and were equals. And then at each table would come one of these teens from the program. And then they start telling their stories. And, you know, the, the guy at Russ's table was, was saying, like, yeah, he says, you know, my, what I remember from growing up is my mom and me doing crack together. You know, and I'm like, that's so far away from the social galaxy I live in. That's like, you know a galaxy long, long ago and a galaxy far, far away. It's just so... You did crack with your mom? But this is the norm. I thought that kind of brokenness, that... I, I am so insulated from that. But what a beautiful thing it was for Russ to open up his, his meal for people who are really needy and hurting and people I might not normally want in my house because I'm afraid they're going to steal something so they can, you know, sell it and buy more crack, right? But he's, he's inviting them in and... And he said, it was so great, Jeremy. He says, that was the best thing. We want to do that again. We want to keep having these guys in to community with us. Um, I thought, what a picture. What a picture of what Christ has done for us. Christ has a table set for us. Christ is the host. Here's his table. And he, he invites anyone here who is a poor, needy sinner who puts their faith in Jesus. All we have to do is come with our sin and put our hope in Christ. Everyone is welcome to eat here this morning. Uh, this is not the Baptist table. This is not the Catholic table. This is not the Lutheran table. This is Christ's table. And the only prerequisite for eating here this morning and, and sharing in this communion meal with us is uh, you have to simply be a person who's come 
broken and needy to Jesus and put your faith in him. Because that's what Christianity is. It's not about denominational labels. It's about Jesus. And so if you have Christ and you trust in Christ and you've come to him as a broken sinner and put your faith in him, then you're welcome to, uh, to share in the Lord's, the Lord's table with us. And so Russ McLeod, would you come and uh, lead us in communion? Russ is one of our elders and he's just a great guy. You've got to get to know this guy. So, uh, Thanks, brother. Thank you. I'm just going to take a second and just add a tad on to what Jeremy was saying regarding Third Monday. Yes, that was all true about that fellow at the table. 